This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today. Uh, very briefly, um, Bernie Garrett. He's going to be talking about alternative medicine. Is the regulation of alternative pract- practitioners in BC effective? Uh, Bernie is an associate professor at UBC School of Nursing and so on. So please join me in welcoming Bar- pardon me, Bernie to our meeting. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, thanks very much for the invitations. My pleasure to be here today. Um, can you hear me okay with the mic? Yeah, great. Um, so I'm going to talk today about alternative medi- um, uh, medicine and regulation in BC in particular, um, some of the myths surround that. Um, and I actually have a couple of polls as well. So if you've got a smartphone, you can use it. It'll come up again during the presentation. But uh, if you enter into your web browser, polev.com, backslash Bernie G, um, you'll be able to participate in those when they come up. Don't worry, I'll be putting that up again, but if you want to get ahead, you can just uh, type in polev.com backslash Bernie G. My background, I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, Basically, I qualified as a registered nurse in 1984 in the UK, and my background's mainly working in intensive care environments and nephrology care, which is where I spent most of my career, um, in sort of kidney units, uh, particularly in transplantation um, and areas like that. Um, In the NHS in the UK, which I'm sure you're familiar with, um, I got a PhD in information science. I'm a bit of a hybrid. I got nursing and sort of information technology background. And uh, I've been a professor at UBC since 2003. And my current research, I look particularly, I I focus on two areas, technological side and work in virtual reality and augmented reality at the moment, particularly for pain, actually, where it's proving quite an effective treatment of uh, acute and chronic pain as a powerful distraction. And the other area which I'm talking more about today is more about uh, deception in healthcare and the psychology of deception. And I got interested in this a few years back, basically probably about 10 years ago, when I noticed there was a growing trend of, you know, particularly in the internet as well, of, of sort of deceptive healthcare claims. You all see them, those pop-up ads that come up on your own websites, Facebook, whatever, that, you know, advertise miracle cures, pills, whatever, you know, one weird trick, etc., all that sort of stuff. And so I, 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 I noticed a lot of patients were actually using these sorts of things, and, uh, and also a lot of them were promoted by alternative practitioners. So I got quite interested in this, and I've sort of been exploring that in the last few years as well. So what, what I'm going to talk about really is about what, what could be termed alternative medicine or complementary and alternative medicine, CAM. The trouble is it's a bit of a minefield trying to define this. Now, people often take a very polarized view on this. They either say, well, you're a scientist and you're anti-OCAM and alternative medicine, or you're in the, you know, the biomedical field uh, or, uh, and you're supporting that stance. In reality, it's a gray area. There, there's a continuum between them. And I'm not here to rubbish all alternative medicine practices. I, I don't know if some of them work or not. What I'm here is as a scientist sort of pointing out that you know, what's the state of evidence for the basis of these in public health care? And that's, that's where my arguments come from, really. Public health care is, you know, 
a, a particular area we have to be cautious of. We're using public resources on it, funds. Uh, we have limited funds. The healthcare demands, as you know, are going through the roof, particularly with older uh, increasing population. If you look at the demographics, it's got more older people now than ever before on the planet. And so there's a huge demand for healthcare resources. So with a limited budget and limited, uh, you know, in Canada, we have an, a, a good provision of, of uh, health services. It could be better, but we've, we've definitely got that. Um, you know, we have to be careful what we're spending that money on. And so I'm very much in the camp of using evidence-based practice. Practices that we pay public funds for should be things that we can demonstrate have a good uh, efficacy and work. Okay, so what is alternative medicine? Your definition of it is as good as mine, really. Um, they're, you know, they're highly varied, and they range from things uh, that regarded, you know, if you look at complementary therapies for a start, these are the ones that people claim uh, are used as a complement to traditional medical care. They're, they're, there's a lot of them around, and, and a lot of them work very well. But unfortunately, they've sort of muddied the waters by putting complementary therapies and alternative therapies together. They're quite different things. For example, yoga is great. It's stretching exercise. It's really good. It's you know something good for you in your health. Um, even Tai Chi, the actual you know stretching and exercise aspects of that are really good. So they all help with your you know your health, and they have health benefits psychologically as well. There's no doubt about that. But if you then take you know, other therapies, like uh, we'll talk about homeopathy in a minute, or uh, other ones where they, they're making health claims about them that they can treat specific diseases or they can you know, cure things that there really isn't the evidence to do. So putting them all together isn't helpful for a start. And separating you know, things that we know work quite well from things that we, we don't know work and there's not good evidence, all in the same boat, it doesn't really help the healthcare profession. What it does help is the practitioners. So the, the definition I use is this one, which is, uh, I, I don't really talk about complementary therapies as such, because I think we should separate that. That's different. But alternative medicine is, uh, they basically come from traditions outside uh, of biomedical science. Um, and that's by Edward Ernst and a few other people have come up with that definition. So there's many names and forms, as I said, complementary, traditional, natural, non-allopathic. Come across that one? <laughs> yeah, so again, this is an idea that, that again, it's rather a, a pejorative term in some ways, suggesting that, for example, conventional medicine just treats the symptoms and doesn't treat the root causes of disease. And so it's allopathic. Now, that might have been true 100 years ago, and, and, and certainly today that's not true. There's a whole speciality in preventative medicine, and, and uh, you know, physicians very much interested in uh, whole, you know, and particularly nursing, we're very interested in, you know, people's whole healthcare environment. Um, and then integrative medicine, which is the combination, there's a trend now, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, of linking some of these alternative practices with established uh, medical practices. So you have a whole range of different terms, and it's quite confusing for a lot of people what, where, where they fit. Um, but again, if you look at what's happening in actual practice and out there, you know, just looking on the web, you'll see there's quite a bit of activity that is not, not particularly honest in the way some of this is advertised. Okay, so here's my first myth that, that I'm going to talk about a few myths today. One is that biomedical science is a Western construct, and this is something that alternative practitioners often put forward. Uh, and, you know,
They're suggesting that uh, science is basically a Western thing, and then they've got this Eastern. So you've got this dichotomy. And the reality is modern science is actually a mixture of a lot of things. Um, we know for a fact that, you know, a lot of the important things of, uh, of West, the contemporary science today came from other cultures, uh, such as zero. The concept of zero has come from Asian cultures. A lot of optical instruments and early work on optics came from um, Muslim cultures. So, you know, there's a whole gambit of things in there. It's not all just Greek Western uh, ideas about science. So, and interestingly enough as well, a lot of the uh, alternative therapies that claim to be of an Eastern tradition are actually invented in the US or in Europe or other places. So the, the, you, you don't have this simple, you know, Western is providing one thing or Eastern another. There's a whole, you know, globe out there and, and these ideas come from around it. So what, what sort of alternative therapies are we talking about and how are they regulated? Well, we, we can look at these, for example. You've got ones that rely on alternative health belief systems. So traditional Chinese medicine, naturopathy, acupuncture, homeopathy, you've probably heard of all those, uh, and herbal remedies. Those are sort of ones that have their own frameworks of belief, um, often involving energy-based types of uh, sort of theories that really are based in faith-based theories rather than evidence. And we'll talk about those a bit more. Um, manipulative therapies, chiropractic and rolfing, you may have heard of those, which are therapies where physical manipulation occurs. Um, chiropractic, of course, with spine. Uh, and then energy therapies, you may have heard of these. There's a big one in BC, Therapeutic Touch, which is promoted by nurses quite a lot, uh, and Reiki. Uh, again, and then devices such as Theta Wellness and Radionics. Anybody heard of Radionics? No, these, are, these are expensive machines you can buy where you apply electrodes to yourself and dial up dials and nobody knows what they do, <laughs> or if anything. Uh, but they cost a lot of money. Uh, and uh, you can, if you look them up on the web, you can buy them. You know, I think you can buy a Radionics machine by mail order for 600 bucks if, if you're so inclined. Uh, but these, these are the sorts of things. The trouble is, again, they all tend to overlap. So categorizing them, it's like counting cats. And new ones pop up, and they do. Believe me, there's new ones popping up every year. Um, they, there's a lot of them around. And they basically overlap a lot. So ca classifying them, for example, acupuncture sounds like it's fairly straightforward because it's using needles to um, uh, basically st stimulate for a response, a health response. But they use, for, for example, a theory of an energy um, a theory based on qi, which is supposed to be these energies that flow through the body. Um, interestingly as well, it, it, the, the paths of those energies, if you look at the meridians, they actually map out the nerve, central nervous system quite well. So there's, there is some overlap. And so theoretically, they're, they're not all easy to cat classify. But the problem is, these would be fine if they from my point of view as a perspective as a health practitioner, if they made claims that, uh, you know, these are faith-based therapies, if you believe in this thing, good luck, you know, go and try it if you want. But when they start to actually then make claims as they inevitably do, I can guarantee practitioners in all of those categories start to make claims about, well, we can treat asthma with this. We can treat cancer with this. We can treat, uh, you know, um, of course, the, the newest ones are, are particularly behavioral therapies. Um, so, you know, attention deficit disorder or autism, we can treat these things with these therapies. Then you start getting into hot water because from 
a modern healthcare perspective, what we're interested in is, you know, if you're claiming a therapy works, you've got to show some evidence, A, it does work with scientific studies before we, you know, it's, no, it's safe and it's actually reasonable to put it in the public healthcare domain. Uh, and, you know, there are therapies we don't know how they work fully. There are still things we still don't fully understand exactly how steroids work, corticosteroids. We've got a really good idea of the uh, chemical pathways and what happens and the physiology, but we don't know 100%. But we do know they work and the results that we get from them when using them. We also know what the side effects are. So, you know, you need to, to have this sort of theoretical background before you let loose on this stuff. And you can't, I, I can't just go around and claim, you know, any therapy I, I come across actually works to cure cancer or whatever, or can I? Okay, we'll come back to that. Let's, let's have a look at see what's used in practice. Now, it's interesting, some of these therapies have been integrated into mainstream medical practice. For example, acupuncture for pain is pretty common. There's acupuncture clinics down in um, uh, Vancouver that you can go to downtown um, that are run by medical practitioners as well. Um, and of course, a lot of the mind-body medicine stuff has now been sort of absorbed into cognitive behavioral therapies and actually works pretty well. So we've got things like journaling, imagery, meditation, those sorts of things. Um, so we know they have uh, an effect on you know, people's sort of anxiety levels and, and mental health. And then homeopathy, well, homeopathy actually not so much now. Uh, unfortunately, it was a part of the NHS, and you used to be able to get it on the NHS. Uh, and uh, there was a, for example, in Bristol, where I used to live, there was a NHS-funded homeopathic hospital. But after about a year ago, they've now come to the conclusion, after a number of years, that they're not going to fund it anymore in the UK. Uh, and here, it's you know, it, you can't get funding for it through. Um, Health Canada, but you can still some insurance companies, I believe, may pay for it. But that's rapidly changing. But uh, interestingly, some of these therapies are available, but only because we're not we know particularly how they work. Although we've got a better idea of how these mind-body medicine ones work because we can see how they alter brain waves with behavioural change. But acupuncture is an interesting one. That's still very much actually in a gray area. There, there's a lot of people who argue it works, but actually the reason it works is now becoming more apparent that actually it's probably the stimulation of the nervous system with needling as a distraction rather than key energy or anything like that. So they're now looking at how that works as well. Interestingly, in China, I was in China last year, and they're very strong at promoting um, traditional Chinese medicine there for a number of political reasons as well as health reasons, but mainly because in the rural areas there's nothing else available apart from TCM. Um, there isn't any sort of uh, science-based medicine available there because they haven't got the resources. So acupuncture is used widely there. They were actually advertising at a conference I went to used for as a anesthetic for open heart surgery. And would you want acupuncture for open heart surgery? No, probably not. I mean, for a start, I wouldn't want to be awake during open heart surgery. <laughs> the thought of you know hearing someone soaring through your sternum is not something you want you want ever to to see. I think. Um, but also, it, it's interesting how they you know so there's a strong market for this, but it's interesting how they're doing it, and when you look closer at what they were doing, and I talked about it with the people at the conference who were saying that, were saying, oh yeah, but of course we had to use, you know, about half a gallon of local anaesthetic first, which was injected in, before they actually ever got to the acupuncture, and they taught the guy to breathe uh, using his diaphragm um, for about a month 
before, uh, and also they had an anaesthetist on hand in case uh, he couldn't breathe. You know, so it, it wasn't clear that you're just using acupuncture for open heart surgery. But of course, that's how it's promoted, and that's how it's done. A famous case as well of uh, when Richard Nixon visited China on his famous visit. One of his team got ill uh, with appendicitis and had uh, a, a surgic surgery while they were there. And they, used, they claimed they used acupuncture again for him. Uh, and he came back and said, wow, they used acupuncture while I was you know, having a, my appendix removed. And then it turned out later, actually, they, again, they used a load of other anesthetics as well. It wasn't just acupuncture. So acupuncture, yes, we know it can have an effect. But again, the evidence is really that it can have an effect in pain in certain circumstances as an adjunct. So myth number two, conventional medicine is allopathic, treating symptoms rather than causes and does not treat the whole person. As I've said, that, that is a complete myth. Um, that, like I say, if you go back 100 years, that may have been true. And you know, at the start of the 19th century, I, I guarantee if you went to see a doctor or you went to see um, a, a witch doctor or whatever, they're probably the chance of the outcomes being better with one or the other weren't much different. Uh, they were, they were pretty, you know, medicine wasn't very good in those days. Um, they were doing bloodletting, things like that, all sorts of other stuff still. Um, but obviously we've come a long way since then, uh, and uh, mainly because of this prolonged uh, adoption of science-based uh, uh, sort of uh, rationales to support medicine and healthcare, and um, what's more recently known since the sort of about the 1990s is evidence-based practice, whereas we're trying to justify what we do in practice based on what the best evidence is. Um, so modern medicine and nursing aims to treat the whole person, their family, and the community, not just you know a particular illness or problem. So uh, admittedly, we don't always do a great job of it. Everybody knows that. We're under-resourced, particularly nursing as well, but medicine as well. You try getting on a GP's list, I'm sure you've all had the same issues. Those sorts of problems exist. So there are problems, but it's not that we're just treating specific diseases. So if we look at regulation in BT, how is the healthcare system regulated? Sort of more of topic today. Well, we've got the Health Professions Act in, in British Columbia, which outlines you know, which professions can be listed uh, and publicly funded uh, or practice, not just publicly funded, also tells us which professions can practice. We have professional self-regulation, which under the Health Professions Act have colleges, which are actually set up by individual professions to actually monitor and maintain um, standards within those. And the idea of colleges is to protect the public. So the idea of the college is its first and foremost function should be public protection. And the idea of that is to stop unscrupulous practitioners or uh, you know, defrauding the public, but also doing public harm by doing practices that are dangerous or, or not being trained to deliver what the practices that these uh, practitioners are. Um, so if, for example, say your physician um, misdiagnosed something and there was evidence that he was incompetent or she was incompetent and they had misdiagnosed an illness, then you could complain to the professional college, uh, in this case it would be the College of uh, Physicians and, and Surgeons of BC, that this person has incompetently you know, diagnosed something. And they would look at the case, and then they would look at the standard of what would be expected of a physician and make a judgment on that. If you disagree with that, 
then you can actually appeal to the Health Professions Review Board. So that is a, a board that uh, is not made up of actually practitioners, it's made up of lawyers mainly, and some members of the public. And they will review the case as a higher level of appeal. That's your last level of appeal. So if, for example, say a nurse is selling beer spas and saying they'll cure cancer, have these beer spas and, you know, beer spas are a real thing, by the way, in case you hadn't heard of them. Uh, they do sound quite appealing, but actually on closer thought, maybe not so much. But the idea is, you know, they're spas filled with beer and uh, you pay a large sum of money to go and do that in a beer hot tub. And uh, basically then, you know, they're they're not just saying it's good for you because the beer tastes good. They're saying actually it's health. It's a health benefit, and you you know they can help with uh, skin conditions, asthma, or a whole range of things they're claiming for these. So say as I I set up my beer spa business as a nurse and say right, fifty bucks a shot, you can come and have a half an hour in the beer spa, and it'll cure all your illnesses. Can I do that legally? I hope not. I, I can, I can, and I can use my RN title to market that. Yes. I can. That's quite worrying, isn't it? So I, c I can go and set up that business and market an RN on it, and I can do it under the guise of saying, well, it's an alternative therapy. It's, it's not based on any evidence, but it's based on faith that I believe, you know, and I can uh, sort of promote some theory of beer spa energy or whatever, and, 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 and I can do that. And my, my body, the uh, College of Registered Nurses of BC, would allow me to do that. If I was in the UK, I wouldn't which is an interesting one. So I can do that. So then if you complained about that, that would go to the college. And the college isn't likely to do anything currently. It may in the future. Currently it isn't. And then if I take that to the Health Professions Review Board, are they going to do something about that, do you think? No, probably not, no, because I'm not, unless I'm actually harming anyone, they're not really interested. They're lawyers, they're not health professionals, so their view is as long as I'm conforming with the college's code of conduct, which they basically cite, you know, what the college says is correct, uh, and that I'm not breaking any of their rules, unless I've actually harmed anyone, they're not likely to do anything either. So the way they interpret uh, healthcare safety and protection of the public is very much on public harm. And the problem, and I'll talk about this a little more in a minute, is it's a very reactionary system, okay? So if I, get, I go and have a beer spa, and I fall out and break my ankle coming out of it because it's slippery and it's a health and safety and whatever, I could probably have a complaint that they'd uphold. So then, you know, because I've been injured as a result of this. Or, or if they, you know, if they said they were uh, treating a very specific condition and they could do it within a month and then it didn't get better, I'd probably have a case there. But if I'm just charging money for stuff, which has got generalized health benefits, according to me, so be it, you know, public buyer beware. It's, it's that real, really that situation. So that, that's one problem. Um, another problem is if you have professional self-regulation colleges, then they're made up of practitioners. They, there is a tendency after a period of time for them, their focus to drift from protecting the public to protecting the practitioner. Uh, I mean, you may have seen the College of uh, Surgeons and Physicians recently had a case where I think it was two doctors 
who'd been on the register here for five years and then never passed the exam. They'd failed it numerous times, but they were still practicing in BC. Uh, they were still practicing uh, and billing the province, <laughs> and they were, you know, actually not qualified to work, and yet they were for for a long period of time. So these things happen. So there is this tendency that the profession, actually, professional colleges, and I've witnessed it over a number of years tend to you know, fall into this trap of actually protecting the practitioner, mainly because they're completely made up of practitioners. Sometimes they have public um, members as well, but the majority are made up of practitioners. And then we have associations and unions. In BC, we do have associations that are separate, and their job is to promote the profession. Um, so they're separate from uh, colleges. Not always. Some, in some provinces in Canada, associations are the same as college. They do the same function. So that then gives you a conflict of interest because on the one hand they're protecting the public and on the other hand they're promoting the profession. So that, those are two different things. Uh, so, and then of course there's the unions which we won't talk about today because we could spend all day talking about how the unions protect the workers as well. So you can see the dice are pretty much loaded on the profession rather than the public here. That's my first point, because you've got associations, union, and colleges that can all end up protecting the profession. And that can leave us to some problems. Let's have an example. Here's a, here's a poll for you. So if you go to this poll, we can look at which of the following, uh, test your knowledge, are regulated health professions in BC. Okay, which doctors you say? Well, we'll, we'll see about that. Uh, here's the poll. So all you need to do is, I see some people have already started to vote. If you go to polev.com slash Bernie G, uh, forward slash, uh, you, you can see, you know, these are the list of, of professions. You can vote on that. Uh, and we've got, yep, people think medicine, nursing, midwives, TCM is traditional Chinese medicine practitioners, and acupuncturists, chiropractors, naturopaths, homeopaths, and paramedics. Where are the witch doctors? Where are the witch doctors? Yeah, actually, I must have left them off. Believe it or not, there is, you can Google this, um, a Canadian Association of Witch Doctors, which is actually uh, based in BC. Uh, but it's a spoof. So that, that, it's actually worth a look. It's quite a funny site. I'll, I'll show you it in a second. Um, okay. So anybody know the correct answers? The last seconds to vote. I, I think I ran out of space on the slide there for uh, Witch Doctors. Let's just see. This is not going to go across. Oh, no, I'll come back to that. Okay. So... Medicine, yes. Nursing, yes. Midwives, yes. TCM practitioners, yes, they are. They are a regulated profession. Um, naturopaths, yes, as well. And uh, homeopaths, no. Chiropractors are, yes, as well. Um, acupuncturists aren't because they come under TCM. It's all in together. And paramedics, no, they're not. No, that's a surprise, isn't it? They're actually uh, not, they don't have a regulatory college. And they're not, uh, uh, yeah, so they're actually, they do, but it's a, it's a BC uh, provincial board uh, control. So they don't have independent professional control over their profession. They're actually controlled through uh, the, the provincial government, um, basically. So they'll license through them. They don't have their own professional college of, of paramedics. This is interesting. You'd think they would. So, yeah, how come paramedics aren't? But naturopaths are. Does that make sense to you? It's, it's an interesting one. So um, here's another question for you. Can naturopaths legally give, and you should find the polls changed if you go to it now, um, give 
nurses orders in BC. So can they employ nurses and give them orders? Like, for example, doctors can um, give nurses orders. It's actually legal statute that they can give uh, nurses orders because obviously they need to give drugs. You know, can you give this drug to this patient? Likewise, so can midwives, can naturopaths. Yes. Okay. So you 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 are conscious of the law at the moment. I, as a naturopath, I can go and employ registered nurses and I can give them orders legally to administer uh, drugs that I can uh, prescribe. So there's an issue here and, and I'll come to that in a minute with, with the way that's set up. And by the way, that's the, the witch doctor's site. If you want to go to it, uh, it's a good laugh actually if you look at it. They've set themselves up as a complete uh, organization that is it's actually set up exactly the same way the College of Naturopaths is, so it's, it's fun to have a look at. They actually, one of the things they state is that none of their therapies are guaranteed to not to work, so none of them work. <laughs> but um, this is, takes me to lift number three, and this, this is a problem people have. That, for example, because they see a naturopath has got a title of doctor, physician, yeah, uh, doctor of naturopathy, uh, they assume that for example, they've had the same level of training as a physician or as a nurse um, or as a physiotherapist, well, even beyond a physio because it's a doctoral qualification. Then here's an example of an email I got uh, about a month ago. Um, actually, it was a letter. I'll read it out. As a taxpayer in our democratic society, I should have the freedom to choose 100% government-funded licensed healthcare practitioners to help me in sickness and health. I think that's reasonable. I feel the government is discriminatory when they fund medical care, but only a portion is paid for alternative health care. Doctors of medicine, doctors of chiropractic, doctors of naturopathy, and doctors of homeopathy, I've not come across that one, but apparently there are, uh, all go through intense, equally intense education and training before they can get a license to practice. Okay, so this is a, a, a letter from a member of the general public. And unfortunately, that's not the case. I'm very, uh, and, and that's why I have a problem with some of these... Uh, practitioners being registered at the same level as a doctoral level as a, for example, physician. Um, for example, where do chiropractors go to university? Anybody know? Iowa. <laughs> Iowa, yes, probably. <laughs> I mean, in Canada. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very good point. Yeah, they can in Quebec, actually. They're, that's the only one. Yeah, right, absolutely. Um, so the issue is, if we look at the qualifications and, and compare, um, for example, naturopaths have a four-year doctoral program. It is called a doctorate at the end at Butcher College. There's two colleges. They're both private. Um, there's Butcher here in BC, which has only been around about five years, and the Canadian College of Naturopathic uh, Medicine in Toronto. These are two private colleges. They're, no, they're not affiliated with universities at all, public universities, um, so basically, their pay, you know, they have got entry qualifications, but they're not regulated by the same boards that regulate university systems. So their level of regulation is far lower. They can basically put what they want in the curriculum. And they're actually, interestingly, the College of Naturopaths is actually um, licensed more from uh, a US-based uh, body. So it's actually n not even licensed by Canadians. Chiropractors, four-year doctoral program at two, and the, the Trois Rivers is actually a public university, so that's the only one. Yeah, yeah, Quebec, which is quite surprised, but it is Quebec, so they do things different there. But, uh, but from I gather, <laughs> but uh, that's the, yeah, the only one. Um, T 
TCM, they're really varied. The TCM ones, you've got uh, diplomas, Pacific Rim College BC, uh, uh, PCU College Holistic Medicine in Burnaby. There's a whole range of them. Again, they're all uh, private colleges. You pay your fee and get your qualification. So immediately there's the issue of you know, the academic level. Is a doctorate in chiropractic the same as a doctorate, say, from UBC, University of Toronto, whatever. I'd argue clearly not, having seen the curriculum and what's involved. Um, the other aspect is how much hands-on practice do they get? I mean, as a nurse and as a doctor, you'd expect a lot of their preparation to be involved in actually looking after patients, yeah? I mean, and that's something I've really fought against in certainly my career in nursing education is there's been a long, strong move to use simulation and take people out of practice. I think that works for a while, but you actually need people, you know, out getting experience with the public in healthcare settings to, you know, understand that. For example, as a physician and as a nurse, you'll spend a large proportion of your training actually in a hospital setting. You'll witness death, you'll witness very acute emergencies, um, you'll witness the whole range of public healthcare issues in all of its you know, forms, from chronic illness to acute illness to cancer to you know, the whole gambit. And the, the idea is to expose practitioners widely to a range of these things that they're going to see, because this is the where they're going to be working in healthcare practice to give them that experience. So, do these people get that sort of experience? Unfortunately not, because naturopaths, for example, only work in clinics with other naturopaths, so the only experience they ever get is of fee-paying people who are coming in for chronic illness. Same with uh, chiropractors. And then with traditional Chinese medicine may get some more exposure, but only if they go back to China. So a lot of these uh, actual um, colleges actually have uh, sabbaticals where they send people back to, uh, not sabbaticals, sorry, electives where they send people to China to do an experience. So they may get some acute care experience, but the majority of them don't. So you've got issues of the level of qualification and you also have issues of the you know, amount of exposure to acute care. Now you'd think, that, well that's fine if, if a naturopath's only giving out homeopathic remedies and you know, generally um, safe and pretty harmless uh, treatments, then that's fine. But naturopaths give IVs now. They, there is a, a company downtown called the, I think it's called the IV store, that is run by naturopaths and will basically advertising that they'll go to your stag party if you're getting married or hen party and they'll give IVs to you so you can get drunk and you won't have a hangover. Okay? So how, how ethical is that? Uh, not just that, also, the concern I have with that is these people aren't equipped to deal with emergencies that can happen. Intravenous therapy, I can train anyone to put a needle in. It's very easy and to administer. That's not the issue. It's understanding that you've then got direct access to the circulatory system. Anything you can give have a very rapid effect and you can kill someone very quickly. I've seen people die as a result of IV therapy as in you know, my career. It's, it happens. So, you know, you, you need people who can actually respond to that quickly and have that experience. These folks don't have it. They don't have that preparation. Okay. Um, also, we're starting to see a trend for adoption, and this is uh, from Tim Caulfield, who's a professor that studies this stuff at University of Alberta, um, and he's a law prof, but uh, he's starting to see public funded expansion into these areas. So they are generally moving slightly into you know, public universities. Um, with support for them, which is a little worrying because 
again, the basis for these is not necessarily on science and faith. Now, you've got a big, uh, it's more on faith-based practices. The issue there is that the problem, you know, how do you define what's taught at a university, what isn't? It's a, it's a really difficult area. But um, there are things that we should be concerned with that are taught at sort of a public university. And so probably alternative medicine isn't one of them. Myth number four, these practices are now becoming backed by a growing body of science uh, and scientific evidence. Well, unfortunately, the, the, the reverse is actually true. That's marketing. Because as I said, if you look at homeopathy now, homeopathy was uh, particularly uh, sort of supported in a number of healthcare practices. And physicians would generally say, well, it's just no harm. So we don't mind if people use it. But now the evidence against it is turning. And um, there's quite a big amount of evidence suggesting that actually it's not a good practice. and. There's, there is no evidence to support it scientifically. I mean, it, the basis of it is if you take a sphere of water that stretches from the earth to the sun, that would have one molecule of an active substance in it, uh, the typical homeopathic sort of remedy that they give you. So, you know, there's no scientific basis for that to work at all. And, uh, the, you know, the, if we look at all the trials and evidence they've done on it, it tends to suggest it works more through placebo effects. But we'll, we'll come back to that. So the problem is... A lot of these, uh, from a science point of view, therapies, they're under-theorized. The theories don't add up. They don't explain what's happening. Um, they're poor quality. Often they're based on very bad trials or things that are put together really with the objective of proving they work rather than, you know, uh, skepticism. Um, or they use pseudoscience just to market them. They're biased. They're not independently verified. So again, a lot of these therapeutics, the science behind them, you'll find it's advertised you know, if I, if I take my witch doctor uh, spells, I, I'll go and do a study and then publish that in the Journal of Witch Doctor Studies. Yeah, who'd have thought? You know, it, it's, you know it's, that's, that's what happens. Um, and so there's no independent, you know, people elsewhere looking at it and verifying, yes, this works. Um, so th th these are problems for us. And they are sort of coming up more and more in the media now. We'll see new studies, for example, on vitamins are tending to show that they don't work as well as we thought. This is from mainstream medicine more, but they're also the vitamin supplement industry has been a huge alternative medicine industry as well, particularly if you think um, people like Gwyneth Paltrow, celebrities you know, marketing, things like those. Um, many naturopathic practices are based on spiritual theories, such as vitalism. Um, and it's fine to have, you know, we're not saying these theories, you know, aren't necessarily true. There's just no evidence that we can find that they work. So why would we use them in a public healthcare setting? Um, and they've got no foundation in the science, and they're based on pseudoscience, a lot of them. And here's another myth for you. Alternative medicine is harmless. Now, that's a big one. That, that's put out a lot. Um, and unfortunately, there's a number of issues there. We know for a start, and particularly if you've ever looked at the media recently, there's a lot of things coming out. We had the, probably saw this in the news, the naturopath in uh, Victoria who was administering a pre uh, preparation made from rabid dog saliva uh, and 
for um, a behavioural disorder, uh, who claimed afterwards that she found out the boy had been bitten by a dog, so it was obvious that it would work. Uh, and <laughs> I don't know how that works. But uh, then we've got, you know, um, chiropractic care. Chiropractors are now advertising care for infants. There's, there is no way a newborn baby needs spinal manipulation. It's just absurd. And they're advertising that, you know, basically birth traumatizes and causes brain damage and spinal cord damage and therefore they need to manipulate it to correct these. I mean the, the key thing what we learn very early on with uh, pediatrics and infant care is don't do anything unless you absolutely have to because you know kids are very robust and, and uh, they don't need a lot of interventions obviously um, at, when the newborns particularly so there's no reason to, to support that at all no evidence at all and again homeopathy was uh, being claimed recently uh, uh, and a naturopathic sort of homeo a couple of naturopaths were claiming that they could cure autism with a therapy called cease therapy uh, that came up in the media um, and that led to one of the chiropractors board uh, members of the board resigning um, after criticism from the government we've got uh, South Beach in the US playing IV therapy for um, to boost their uh, performance at naturopathic clinics again very dangerous stuff to be doing and also we've got Chinese medicine, a couple of deaths recently and regularly, and there's another one with IV uh, turmeric that was given um, recently uh, in the States. Again, this was somebody who died as a result of. So you know, if I were to add these up and compare them to deaths through medical therapy, obviously they're a lot smaller. But the difference is, you know, the number of medical practitioners is huge and patients going through those systems. And just because there's problems with medicine doesn't mean that these things are validated. The argument was very simply put once by, you know, airplane crashes don't validate flying carpets. Uh, you know, uh, we, we can, you know, see there's problems in both health systems, yeah? But uh, that doesn't mean that we, we should adopt alternative health because they they're not harmless. They do have significant health. And of course, I'm not even talking about the issues of going to, you know, using alternative health instead of traditional medicine, which is another problem. Um, I mean, the most famous case of that is probably Bill Gates. Uh, not Bill Gates, sorry. Um, Steve Jobs, yeah, I'm getting it wrong. Steve Jobs in Apple who, who had cancer and actually, you know, probably... I'm not saying he would have survived, but certainly he didn't do himself any favors by doing uh, exploring a lot of alternative therapies. So that's a good example, because why do very intelligent people like that go and use these practices? Well, to finish up, we'll have a quick look at that. Um, some interesting other myths just to think about, and these are the sort of ones that are perpetuated and growing. Vaccines, again, vaccines aren't perfect, but they have got significant health benefits that we know of. And this idea that vaccines cause autism has been around for ages, and it started off in the UK um, with Dr. Andrew Wakefield, who you may have come across, who's a, a UK physician who suggested there was a link between vaccines and autism. Uh, and then, unfortunately, his study was found and was published uh, and caused a massive uproar and concern about the safety of vaccination for measles, mumps, rubella. It was the combined vaccine he was, he was looking at. And actually was then found that he'd fixed, fiddled his results uh, uh, and had done it for basically to gain exposure. Well, his motives still remain unclear. Uh, and he was struck off. He was struck off the medical register for this. And yet he's still around. He met recently with Donald Trump in the States. Oh. Yeah, and Donald, yeah, well, enough said. <laughs> so, yeah, that probably tells you all you need to know about that he's been invited to speak with Donald Trump. So, you know, that, that's really bad science 
and that, that's caused a massive impact. Um, there are no links between autism and vaccination identified currently. We don't know of any. Um, there, there's, there's a correlation, but not causation, of you know, increases in autism uh, with vaccination, but there's also an increases of autism with the you know, number of red cars on the road. We don't claim that's a causative factor. So, examples of naturopathic therapies as well that are problematic, homeopathy, IV chelation. Like I said, these are serious invasive therapies. That's in giving an IV and then giving substances that, for example, can remove iron from the body or add iron. Uh, Cholelic irrigation, IV and oral vitamins, homeopathic vaccinations, they've been suggested. In fact, when the Ebola outbreak was uh, last a couple of years back, um, there was a team of homeopaths who went to Africa to, you know, suggest that they were uh, going to cure Ebola with homeopathic uh, vaccines. No, it didn't work. Obviously, <laughs> they weren't very well received. But sometimes they are, you know, in, in other countries when people go and give alternative medicine because it's free and people don't know any better. Uh, no sodes. These are homeopathic remedies made from disease substrates such as rabid dog saliva, pus from dog's ears. There's a whole variety of them you can find on the web. All of these are, you know, potentially risky treatments. So risk, myth number seven, uh, alternative practitioners are the little guys fighting against big medicine and big pharma. Uh, and I've actually been accused of being in the pocket of big pharma, which is really weird because I'm a nurse and I've never had a check from a pharmaceutical company ever. Um, but th this is the sort of uh, rhetoric that is used. But if we look at alternative medicine, it's actually massive business. And that's the thing I've sort of been looking at over the last few years. Um, more than 38 million adults visit alternative practitioners in the US in 2009. Alternative medicine um, is a $34 billion industry in the US alone. And the nutritional supplement industry is worth billions on its own as well. And they, these aren't, you know, my statistics, these are Reuters, uh, Smithsonian, who've come up with figures that evidence it is very much big business. So to sort of finish up, why are they still so popular? Well, psychology of persuasion is very interesting. And if we look at, this is what I study, if we look at how these are basically, uh, people are persuaded into this, they use social engagement. Facebook's a lot, uh, a lot of this stuff goes on Facebook now um, with adverts popping up because they know that's, that's very effective. Claims of extraordinary effects, that's one of the key things. Whenever you go to these sites, when you go to your doctor, they're not going to say to you, yes, I can cure cancer, take this treatment, you know, with chemotherapy and radiotherapy. They'll give you some statistical odds of, you know, what, depending on your condition, what, what the actual likelihood is of you, you know, surviving five years or something. It's an inexact science, medicine. It's got a lot of art involved. However, you go to some of these guys, they'll claim, you know, we can cure cancer, we can, you know, resolve asthma, autism is completely, we can get rid of that. They make real claims that they cannot substantiate. Uh, they'll usually use this idea of scarcity. It's only available because we have this specialist knowledge that nobody else has, and you can only get it here. Uh, or, you know, you have to come here to, to this special site to, to obtain it. They use pseudoscientific language. For example, ozone-activated cellular defense, one I came across. You know what that means? I've got, I've got no idea. I have absolutely no idea what that is at all. And it's just nonsense. So there's a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, 
also, if you use these techniques, you can make, you know, we will make you like our research. There was an interesting research paper titled that a few years back. Um, we know the following personality traits are effective in persuading people. And advertisers use this from car salesmen to anybody selling products. Desire for attention, comfort. People who, you know, people want to be comfortable. And that's a big thing in alternative medicine. I mean, when was the last time you went to a doctor's clinic? Was it a ex nice experience? Probably not, I'd say. You know, you probably wait in a waiting room that's a bit, you know, uh, sort of needs, need, in need of decor and, and just waiting with a lot of other people. It's not a very pleasant experience. They come in, they probe you with, you know, thermometers or, you know, it's not a comfortable experience very often. Whereas if I go into a, a naturopath's office, it'll be a really nice office with plants and, you know, well decorated and relaxed. It'll just be me there. I'll, you know, it'll be a very pleasant experience. So we all desire comfort. There's nothing wrong with that, but that, that's particularly what they play to. Desire for sensation seeking. We all some, want something that's a bit new. Pers some personalities more than others like to try new things. That works very well for marketing. Desire for self-control. We all want to have this idea that we have self-control over our health to some degree that we're not just you know, blown in the wind by whatever happens. So again, taking control, particularly when medicine says, well, yes, there is the condition where there's not much we can do about it, which is a lot of chronic conditions because we don't really manage those very well, um, and other illnesses. So you know, it's the idea to take self-control of your illness and your health. And an openness for taking risks and preference for uniqueness, liking things that are a little bit on the edge and liking things that are unique. So if you've got those personality traits, these folks will target you very, very clearly, uh, quickly. So what can we do about it? Well, there are things you can do, and I, I'm, this is what concerns me a little, and how you can actually sort of work to try and improve you know, the situation. Advertising Standards Canada, it is worth um, applying to them if you see things that are misleading or misrepresented uh, and false. And I regularly do that with advertisements. And I've got a tool here I can show you that makes it very easy to do that. Competition Bureau Canada, they're another, uh, if you think that uh, a, a particular practice is being marketed as anti-competitive, you can do that. The only reason I'd probably use Competition Bureau Canada rather than Advertising Standards Canada is simply Advertising Standards Canada hasn't got any teeth. It can write a sanction on people saying, yes, stop advertising. You have actually broken the code of conduct in Canada for advertising. And uh, they, they will send a letter and publish that on their website. But that's it. There's nothing to stop the person a week later doing exactly the same thing. So that's how these practitioners get away with it. Competition Bureau Canada can find people. So they, they are quite useful for doing that. Also, write to the health minister if you've got concerns about these. Uh, Adrian Dix, I mean, the politics are interesting here because traditionally politicians aren't particularly keen to intervene in this, simply because, you know, these are voters out there <laughs> using these things. And they, they, I mean, a lot of this started with naturopaths with Gordon Campbell's government, but now, um, you know, it's, very few politicians will be willing, willing to peel back or repeal stuff here, law in terms of regulation, simply because it could be a vote loser in some contexts. So there are tools, like I say, to finish up that you can use. There's this one called Fish Barrel. You can look, use that in the web. It's great. It's a plug-in. I could show you it in a minute if you want, if we've got time, but we'll see how the discussion goes, um, which is a plug-in for browsers like Chrome or Safari, where if you see something that's false on a website, you can just click on Fish Barrel, which is a plug-in at the top of the browser, and then you can highlight things on the website, click a submit button, and it will automatically create a complaint ready to go to Advertising Standards Canada. Uh, so it's really easy to do. 
taking screenshots from it as well, which are attached. So it does it all for you. All you have to do is just type in a couple of things. It's a great little tool. And there's something called the Quackometer, which is quite fun as well. Um, you can look these up on the web. But basically, if you've got a suspicion about a website being uh, false, you can actually type in the URL, the, the web address, into the Quackometer, and it will give you a... It, 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 it ranks it in ducks canards for quackery. <laughs> and the five, five ducks is the worst, and one, one duck is, is not so bad. But those things actually, they're quite useful practical tools for people. And we've got a tool coming out that's going to be published in about uh, three months' time, which is, again is designed for people to be able to use so they can actually assess health claims and practices to see if they're evidence-based or not. So that's pretty much all I wanted to talk about. We can have a discussion. If you want a fun, um, lighter take on the subject, I'd recommend the Storm video by British comedian Tim Minchin. If you've seen it, it is quite funny. Unfortunately, he does swear a lot in it, so if you don't like that, I'll warn you up front. But it, it, is that, it does actually make some very good logical arguments. It's, a, it's on a cartoon on YouTube, uh, and it, it, it actually presents some of these issues. It, it tells the story of it going to a dinner party where he meets someone who's really got a lot of belief in alternative practices. And that's it, so thank you very much.